Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As I often say, bring you the finest in indie pop. But anyway, this week is a bit of a different, um, slightly different one because I recently spoke to the journalist, writer and also a man who worked his life in PR. Yes, the one and only Mick Houghton, who's just got a book out titled Fried and Justified. Hits, myths, breakups and breakdowns in the music business from 1978 to 1998. So I'm gonna got, I've got that interview that I'll break up into various easy to digest little segments um, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play, um, yes, one of your favourites and mine and a band that Nick Hurton worked with. This is Echo and the Bunnymen and a track titled The Back of Love. Oh, 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 oh,
And that's the chart band sounds of Echo and the Bunnymen with the track titled Back of Love. I know you were surprised. And that came from their 1983 album, Porcupine, which we went out, bought and loved intensely. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show bringing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be not a member of a band. It is Mick Houghton, who done PR for most of his adult life and has just got a book out that's uh, just been published on Faber and Faber titled um, Fried and Justified Hits, Myths, Breakups and Breakdowns in the Music Business from 1978 to 1998. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago for the interview. So I want to bring you that um, in a bit of time. I'm going to play one more track and then the first part of the interview because the excitement is building and also it gives me a chance to babble and also give you some admin update you can contact me via facebook twitter or instagram just go to at c86 show i am there always waiting excitedly anticipations everything and also all these shows that i've been doing for nearly three years i've archived so you can find them on um, spotify um itunes podbean and mixcloud indeed the magic four anyway we're going to play another track before the first part of the interview this is another artist that mick Houghton worked with, and this is Julian Cope.
There you go, Julian Coe with the track titled Elegant Chaos. An elegant chaos that came from his 1984 album, World Shut Your Mouth. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Time is money. We need to press on. This is the first part of my interview with Mick Houghton when I began that fascinating interview where I um, yeah, said, why the book? When? Why? How? What was the moment, Mick? Tell us. And this was his answer. Tell us, please, Mick. I, to be honest with you, I've probably, if you ask friends, I've probably been talking about doing it for 10 years or more. But um, it, it's very difficult. It's one of those things that um, I knew that for it to work, it had to be, it couldn't, I couldn't just write a kind of history of that period that I was involved in and, 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 you know, and just make it like a series of potted biographies, really, of all the artists. I knew it had to be my story and it had to be my narrative. For it to work, and and I, I just found that difficult. It's it's I find it it's quite difficult writing about oneself in a way, um, even even though you're kind of recounting stories about working with Echo and the Bunnymen or the KLF, whoever it is. Um, it was just finding, yeah, I think it was just getting the confidence to do it. You know, I've done other books, but but the other books I don't weren't you know were written in the third person, so it was, yes. easy, it was easy to write about Sandy Denny because I wasn't there, if you know what I mean. So, so I think I think I just kept putting this one off, and then um, just just seemed like a good time to do it, really. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, obviously, it's a fantastic kind of. Yes, like any of these kind of things, that that was that kind of period of music, which you must have seen a huge amount of change from those early years, you know, from... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You, I, I haven't read Phil Savage's book, but like, I, I imagine that deals with a much uh, narrower period because my book really starts... It starts as, from me as a journalist but in, in the mid-'70s, and then as a PR, I became a PR in 1978. So it, it just goes through, I think, different eras because I was coming out of punk into, you know, what people just people now kind of blindly talk about as post-punk. Although it strikes me, everything after 1978 is post-punk, <laughs> but just because you know, just because that was that was the dividing line. So um, um, yeah, I, th I think it covers it, it just covers different eras. And, and like you say, I talk about C86. Um, and when C86 happened, uh, that was that was obviously very much about a whole a whole period of music that, that started in that year, in a sense. But but was as much as anything inspired by one of the groups that I worked with, which is the Jesus of Mary Chain. Mm. 
Yes. Well, it's quite interesting because um, obviously, you know, okay, going straight into chapter nine then. <laughs> but it was <laughs> because cause, cause I suppose, you know, I realise, you know, I've sort of been doing, you know, interviews now for years and this particular one nearly three years you know thinking there weren't that many indie bands and and then suddenly realizing I've nearly got up to 150 to 200 that I realized that most bands have this five-year narrative you know they get together they make a sound and in that period John Peel would give them the play then the session that that would give them that first album and things were generally going quite well little did they know the second album the dynamics and the business was going to finish them off so so I put that kind of indie world down at, between the years 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths. Because then the other thing that finishes them, if that, those three, is kind of the music, cha- the, the musical landscape change and suddenly the dance scene. And then you had this kind of stuff from America and, and the beginning of grunge, I guess. So, so is it, as a, doing, doing PR, you, you must start realising when the, you have that youthful enthusiasm that, there must be moments where you think, yeah, it's not going to last because I can see what's coming next. Yeah, to, I mean, to some extent, the thing is that particularly when I started in, in 1978, when the even the, the music was very much driven by what sort of independent music, if you like, it was very much driven by, by the music press. And, and you, you had four weekly music papers, you know, The Enemy, Mosey Maker, Sounds and Record Mirror, uh, all of which... You know, continued. I think Sounds and Record Mirror folded in '91, but when I started in '78, that was almost all there was. I mean, you 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 could you could build up a group's career through the music press, and and in, and one of the other things that was important was, as you mentioned, was was John Peel. But you know, as part of this progression, you, you know, you got your single reviews in, in the music press, then you probably got a live review, then. If you made an album, the album got reviewed. You got your first feature. You, you could chart a progression of a group just through through the the way they progressed in the press, and you know to a point where you know with most of the groups I was working with, at, at some point, you know they would get on the cover of the NME, and and that was a really big deal. Um, but um, I think where that changed was that through the 80s, you, you you just got more and more music publications coming along. Um, you know, I think Q started in '86, and then you had other monthly magazines. You had you had Smash Hits, you had The Face. So it it wasn't quite it wasn't quite as regimented as it had been in the in the sort of late '70s, early '80s. Um, but also, I think record companies got wise to this, and that they could see that progression, and they could also see that because these groups had a sufficient following, then. They, you know, they could get them in the charts, but you know, there's certain amount of marketing that went on, which means that they could get a single into the top 40, and that sort of took them onto another level because then, if you got into the top 40, it meant you, you, you could get wider radio play. You might get on top of the pops. I think it influenced retail, so there were, you know, you sold more records. So, but um, I mean, that was that was thing that was the biggest change by by the mid 80s. Yes, and and the other thing, and and you know, with John Peel, and then the music papers, and then I suppose there's the magazines. The other thing that I, I hadn't realised was that they acted as fantastic gatekeepers. You know, it was almost like I wouldn't say it would, would have been easy because obviously I wasn't there at the time, but it must have been easy. And it, it is now because it's like you get a single in the NME or a play on the John Peel, you you instantly get 
a kind of a following and for those as you know as an example the indie bands you know there, there was also those lot of those kind of little indie clubs all over the country in every little city and town there would be something on most nights from Bristol to Leeds to Glasgow to Norwich to Brist you know to Brighton so so people you know I could see how bands having interviewed them could slow well quite quickly start gathering momentum whereas I noticed a lot of bands from Norwich, we're on forum, you know, they're kind of stuck in Norwich and they're just playing in front of their friends, family and anybody yeah. else they could emotionally blackmail to go and see them. But beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, it's not that, you know, the, they haven't got that John Peel play and then the session and that kind of, yeah. oh my God, someone's heard heard of us on the other side of the country. So being in PR at that time must have, you know, you must have been able to sort of work those channels kind of relatively smoothly. Yeah, you did, but there was still, you know, but you still had, you know, you talked about the sort of lifespan of the group, um, but there was still a difference between, I mean, a lot of groups made a couple of singles, made, maybe made one album, but they still didn't make enough of an impact necessarily to go on and make a second album, or if they did make a second album, they, you know, they didn't really appear to be getting anywhere. And and, and I think that was another difference. If you look at a group like Echo and the Bunnymen, um, in terms of the, you know, if you if you want to evaluate things by chart success, it wasn't until their third album that they had a hit. They finally had a hit record, and, and in a way that was a good thing because I, I think it enabled groups to kind to, to grow and to grow into just actually just not to grow, but to be able to cope with us that success when it came. Whereas the the other group, one of the other groups I was working with, Teardrop Explodes, they. You know, they came from the same background as a kind of bunny man. They were both originally on two records. The Teardrops, you know, had a huge hit with Reward at the end of 1980. And that, in a way, that kind of sent them spiraling off into, into the wrong direction because because they were suddenly perceived as a pop band. And, you know, you had someone like Ju- and Julian Cove, who was the, the, the lead singer, the, well, the, the kind of front man of the group, you know that that kind of sent him off kilter because he he didn't really want that pop success. He wanted to continue being appreciated more as a, a cult level. I mean, he wanted to be Jim Morrison or Iggy Pop, not Adam and the Ants. So, <laughs> um, so it's it's kind of strange. In, in, I suppose in a way, you sort of have to be careful what what you wish for, really, because it's, and obviously, if you're signed to a major record company they're pushing you more and more to have more hit records and, and it, it, may, it may not be what you want, you know, and I think the Bunnymen were, were different and I think this was true of the Smiths as well, is that they managed to maintain that, that kind of cult status um, and, you know, and it was a combination of all these things and I think for the music, you know, for both those bands, the Smiths and the Bunnymen, the music press was really important because I think that that sort of kept them on a certain, on a, on a I think that that grounded them, I think, to some extent. So, so they, you know, they could still, they were still perceived as a as a cult act rather than a, a chart act. Yeah. And that was the difference between, you know, that was the difference between groups like Echo and the Bunnymen and, um, you know, the, the New Romantics, for example. You know, because I think they were they were, they were much more geared towards the pop towards pop pop success from day one. Yes. Indeed, I'm agreeing with him. This is always the best way if you've been in, uh, interviewing someone. Anyway, please make notes. I will test you at the end just to make sure that you've been paying attention. You could learn something. Anyway, that was uh, Mick Houghton talking about those early years and his new book, which is really worth checking out. Anyway, 
we need music, then we'll chat. This is going to be the KLF and um, that classic and uh, the one that we all grew to love very quickly. This is titled Stand By The Gems. Really, are we? I don't know. Anyway, that was the KLF with a track called um, Kick Out the Jams. And now, this is the second part of my interview with Mick Houghton, where I'd been babbling on for at least a minute about uh, 
the excitement of being in a band, especially when they're sort of on that role and they're doing an album a year and they're the main big thing, then they have a break. And then when they come back, their fans have slightly moved on for various reasons. And then there's been a new kid in town. So I've been talking about Echo and the Bunnymen and that moment where they have a break and then suddenly the Smiths appear and everybody starts, you know, basically they've got a new best friend and that's that's the reality of life. And this was Mick's um, answer to that very interesting point that I made. Mm, perhaps it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 there's always a, you know, there's a lot, I think a, there, are other, there are always other factors involved. But you're right, I think, I think all through the 80s, it's interesting that most groups probably did make an album a year, or at most it would be, you know, they might take another six, six months longer for, for certain albums. And it, it, it's true, if, if, you, if you took a year out, or for whatever reason you didn't put something out for two years, you, you, you wouldn't you're in danger of, of losing your fan base because, like you say, because they've moved on to something else. Um, I mean, the Bunny Men for, for the first half of the 80s, up until Ocean Rain, were probably the, the biggest cult band of their kind in this country. And people always talk about, oh, the Bunny Men should have been as big as you too. But it was more difficult for the for the Bunnymen when the Smiths came along because the Smiths stole, if you like, the Smiths stole the Bunnymen's cult crown. Um, by that stage, you 2 had already got so much bigger that, um, you know, particularly in America, whereas, you know, a group like us and the Bunnymen, they, they weren't, they, I mean, they're often thought of as underachievers because they didn't, the Bunnymen didn't really want that level of success or they didn't want to put all the work in of going to America and touring for three months. They, but so, uh, and they didn't want to use certain producers. You know, the record company was always saying, "Oh, you should use Steve Lizzie White to get that sound that the Americans are going to go for." In in a way, the, the you know the Bunny Man very much did things their way, and you know you have to respect a group that that, that, that does that really. But the, the downside of that is that if you do, then which which they chose to take a year out in 1985. You know, it's 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 difficult coming back from that. You know. And, yes, um, <laughs> it's very tricky, I, and it, it's quite a cruel world because obviously, you know, yes, things change. But you know, just as a, as a hypothetical, and being having got so much experience, and we mentioned the, the Smiths. I mean, how would you deal with someone like Morrissey now, trying to deal with his kind of PR? Because obviously, you know, you you, you must have seen a lot of things in your world that you think, yes, that's a good thing to do, that's not such a good thing. And then you see someone like, you know, dear old Morrissey, who'd met so much and then recently has changed a bit. <laughs> and and I just wondered how any PR person would try to manoeuvre that because that is kind of the job of the PR person, isn't it? Well, it is, but you, at the same time, you can't... You know, you can advise people, you can try and... You can't make, you know, I don't think anybody could stop... Morrissey from behaving the way he wants to behave, you know. Um, I mean, what, what, you know, you know, to some extent, with with someone like Ian McCulloch and Echo and the Bunnymen, there was a point when, you know, I think people thought he was getting out of control because he was doing these interviews. He'd become this Mac the Mouth character who was, you know, saying outrageous things that that you know the rest of the group weren't quite weren't so happy with things he was coming out with, and and, and that caused sort of like a rift sort of rift between the band. I, I, I think someone like Morrissey, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, you, I, I, I don't know how you, 
I don't know him. I've never worked with him, so it's difficult to say what what you do. I think you. I mean, to some extent, I think with a lot of artists, you you, you almost have to just take them or what take them out of the out of the public eye for a while. I mean, I, I've always believed that too many groups, too many artists, do way too much press, um, and sometimes, you know, it, it's it's quite good to. You know, to sort of hold back. You know, not not to just do everything that comes along, and, and just you know, build up a um, sort of build up a bit more momentum just by you know, just by keeping keeping out of the out of the press for a while, or you know, or do, or doing doing something different. You know, if 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 you look at another group I'm very associated with, which is the you know the Jams and the KLF. <clears throat> Their success came through not so much through doing interviews, but because they were always, you know, they were doing these kind of crazy stunts, for want of a better word, but to a point where the press was just fascinated by them and obsessed with them. And, and you know, we with them, we, we, we stopped doing interviews after a while because it, it just didn't become necessary because they were they were just generating so much interest by, by what they were doing. Um but there are just there are different ways. There are different ways. You, as a as a PR, you you pretty much have to gear the, the finer details of how you operate. It have to be totally geared towards the artists, and all all artists are different. You know, I mean, there are artists I worked with that really didn't like doing interviews at all. A group like the Jesus and Mary Chain were never comfortable doing interviews. So, so that that's difficult as well because they 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 just didn't enjoy that experience and. Um, you know, and I think all groups have to get. All groups have to learn how to deal with with the press, how to learn how to deal with the press, how to how to how to deal with photo sessions, all, all the all the all the mechanics of the process. You, you've got to find a way to to deal with it, and, and some some people are better at better at that than others. And I think for someone like Morrissey, he, he was tailor made for it to begin with, and then it, it's 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 like he lost control, I guess. of, of, of of what he thought, you know, people wanted to hear from him or, you know, just, just, he kind of got out of hand to some extent, really, with some of his statements <laughs> and some of his comments. Yes. Yeah, and, um, but I suppose yeah, I, 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 I just, sorry, I, was, I, I don't know enough about Morrissey to know, you know, whether he, sometimes he's doing things or saying things to effect or whether, some people do, I'm not saying he does, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like, that they're almost trying to wind the press up, wind the public up by coming out with something outrageous. You know? Yes. Well, I, I suppose I, I, I thought of, had up to a line thought that and then thought, I'm not quite sure anymore, I'm a bit confused. So is that the case then, that you get an artist and you look at them and say, right, we need to sit down, we need to have a meeting and I need to get to know them, vice versa, and let's have a bit of a strategy. Is that how a good PR you know, person is and a, and a sort of the campaign, so to speak. Yeah, up to a point. I mean, I, uh, I mean, it's, it's absolutely crucial to get to know the <clears throat> to get to know the artists, get to know the group, um, and and it and which doesn't happen overnight because most groups are a bit wary, a bit suspicious of anybody coming in from the outside. So you, you do have to earn people's trust and respect. Um, but the other side of that is, which I think. Um, you know, which which I which I think was one of the reasons I was successful was I I also knew the the, 
I got, I got on really well with journalists. I knew the, I knew the press really well, and you know, and so it's, it's almost like, you know knowing the right things to do if you're if you're setting up an interview, knowing the right journalist to set up with that particular group. Um, you can't teach people how to you can't teach people how to do interviews and how to be good at communicating. They have to learn, and then to some extent. Um, all you can do is, is try and make it easier for them. But um, I mean, I've, I've worked with groups. I was group that I was worked with for a long time that I liked a lot and thought should have been much more successful. It was a group group called Gorky Psychotic Monkey, a, a Welsh group, um, and they they just found it that doing. They found interviews really difficult. They didn't feel comfortable doing them, and um, it's it's hard if if, if you. You know, some some people are naturals. Julian Coat was a natural. Morrissey was a natural. And McCulloch eventually became a natural at doing interviews and and you know being able to come up with great quotes and you know top you know and, and just or turn on the charm or, or whatever you have to do. You know, you've got you to say you can't teach that. It's 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 um, I think it's instinctive. Sometimes it's buried within people, and you you know you have to give them time to. To, to, you know, to release that, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 um, but there's lots. I think with with PR, I think there's a there's a lot that's. I mean, the the, the basics are very simple, but I think there's also a lot that's very intuitive, and you you just have sort of like I say, you have to know what to do at the right time sometimes, and and often to know when to hold back, and and um, you know, it's sort of. Go yeah. with the flow, almost. <laughs> yes, I mean, the other thing, um, you know, just uh, one thing that I found curious, because um, at that age where, you know, you'd watch all these programmes, and there weren't a lot in the 70s and possibly the 80s, and most bands at that stage were quite frivolous in their kind of comments and, you know, would be always talking about, you know, it's all about the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And then, then I sort of realised a few years ago, you think, God, you never hear that phrase anymore, do you? And I just wondered if, on that PR front, I just wondered if moments like that where you just go, you know, because it was a real sort of thing about, you know, those massive tours in the 70s where it was complete debauchery. And then suddenly it's like, oh, my God, please stop saying that. You know, we <laughs> we should all be in prison. We should. So I just wondered, as a PR person, whether you ever had to, you know, just step into someone and say, look, can we just have a quick chat and um, talk about a few things? No, not not really. Again, it comes back to trust. I mean, one of the things that that changed, and it probably began to change in the nineties, is that if if you were, you know, if you were in a group or the publicist for that group, journalists had a lot of access to that group. So, I mean, you would you would if you were doing a feature for you know for the LME or for Q, you know, you would go on the road with the band for three or four days, and so you had to trust the journalists that. Um, that that it was somebody that actually one is on one level is it's just going to get on with the band, you know, because you're, you're bringing somebody into a to almost like this little community of people that that's, um, that that are close and, and have their own way of doing things, and you can't just bring any any person in and drop them in the middle of that and, and you know expect them all to get on. Um, but there was, the, you know, I, I, I think the whole sex and drugs and rock and roll thing is is a is a bit overplayed. I think I think I think people tend to think in terms of I don't know, Led Zeppelin and Hammer of the God, Hammer of the Gods, something like that. Um, the level of sex and drugs and rock and roll 
that I witnessed or was party to or was privy to with some of the groups was actually it was it was much more it was much more innocent somehow. You know, it was you're talking about kids having fun, really. Kids, it was, you're talking about somebody that's suddenly in a successful group and you've got all these temptations in front of you, whether it's whether it's girls or boys or drugs or whatever. Um, and you know, it was. I got to say, I, I, I don't think it was it was it was quite as debauched as the press like to make out. Um, at least, you know, and, and and that's where the, you know, I suppose my role to some extent is, is to make sure that, like I say, you you, if you're going to take a journalist on the road, you 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 choose somebody that you know you can trust, that's that's going to get on with people. It's not going to, you know, um, try and make something out, make a story out of something that isn't really there. If you know what I mean, it's it's um, it's it's. It's a lot, it's all to do with with relationships between people. Yes, but but I think you are right about that. that the whole concept of sex and drugs and roll just seems to apply to a, a lost age of of, of, of groups, uh, and I think it much more. I think it more applies to, I guess, a lot of the kind of post sixties sixties bands that came into the seventies. The sort of heavy metal bands, hard, hard rock bands. I think that's that era is associated much more with that than with. You know, with indie bands in the eighties. Um, <laughs> I mean, fun. like I guess it. I, I guess it sort of. I guess it returned to some extent with the with with groups like the Stone Roses and uh, Happy Monday, certainly in terms of sort of bad behaviour and drugs. But um, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I never quite understood why journalists were so fascinated with it. To be honest, it, it, it's uh, it's. Do you not think it's? Do you not think that when it, it's just boring to read. It's boring. Yes, it's very really boring to read about other people's excessive behaviour. To be I find. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a kind of, it's a tricky one because when people write their thing, you know, you you want someone to be a bit interesting rather than bland. So I've just been reading. I suppose I did just read Morrissey's biography, autobiography, and you know it was kind of fascinating. I mean, it was kind of like relentless, but again, it was it was quite interesting. And I thought, oh, perhaps I should read Johnny Marr. And someone said, oh, don't bother. It's far too boring. So you kind of need something rather than someone just you know merrily sort of whistling away through their life and hoping that you'd be interested to read it so there is a fine line isn't it because because we love things yeah. like the Fleetwood Mac story because it's like wow there's a lot there isn't there which part do you want and there's some bands and the Eagles you know you want all that kind of stuff you don't really want someone who just was too boring I suppose so it, yeah. it, it is boring but at the same time you know the, these rock stars or whatever live the light you know they live this thing for us to almost be entertained on so many levels so i suppose we don't want them to be too ordinary we want them to be slightly different but then at the same time we take a dim view when it all gets a little bit over the too yeah. far over i mean the I, I think you know but it's difficult to me to, i mean people someone like julian cope or ian mccoy they were very they were very colorful characters they were very funny you know i think that's the thing about morrissey back in the day he was very fun he was really funny i think and, and you enjoyed reading about them because it was all very witty, I think, and, and um, you, you, you got this kind of great repartee between the artist and the journalist. But um, and you know, there was, you know, if you if you I don't know if you've ever read Julian's book Head On about the Teardrop Explodes. I mean, that's 
that's incredibly funny. And this this whole passage is about ridiculous and ridiculous kinds of drugs they took on the road, but somehow it makes it entertaining. I, th- I think reading stories about other people taking drugs is is actually quite dull, you know. <laughs> in the end, <laughs> yes. But but equally, you know, it, it's not all. But all not all groups are like that. I mean, I someone. I mean, I worked with a group like the Wedding Present, who were hugely popular in the in that sort of C eighty six period, and were very much seen as the the you know the group that that Smith. If you didn't like the Smiths, you liked the wedding present. And 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 what what people found, what people liked about the wedding present, was almost that they were this. Um, I mean, a lot of journalists would say they were they were boring. They weren't at all boring. You know, they they, but they were almost to some extent they were the antithesis of David Gage of the wedding present was almost like the antithesis. antithesis I can't say it of Morrissey, um, but. There were, but there were people that, that preferred them to the Smiths because they liked that David's songs were. He was almost like an everyman, you know. His, his songs were all about kind of relationships, um, and you know they, they appealed very much to. I mean, the, you know, journalists would always say, "Oh, it's only it's only students and people that listen to the John Peel show that like the wedding present." You know, they they, they weren't flamboyant characters, but that didn't make them any less interesting. It. Um, you know, yes. it's, uh, but you know, they, if you don't have that, if you need that, I guess you'd need that contrast, really. You know. Yes, and I, I guess I mean, and, and you sort of mentioned in chapter nine <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that the C eighty six wasn't a genre that you, you particularly liked, and at that time, you, I think you seem to remember saying that you, you were sort of slightly out of touch with some of the John Peel, that kind of period of John Peel. I, I can't quite remember, actually. There was something you, you mentioned about sort of being familiar with a lot of those kind of obscure no, bands. No, I, I, I wasn't, but, but I mean, I, see, I, I think, you know, that John, John Peel's shows were very generational. And, and so, I mean, I, I, first, I was first listening to John Peel when he was on Radio London in, in the late 60s. Um, and... I think that was, in a way, what was remarkable about John Beale is that he he managed to stay in touch with each generation of bands. But um, you know, I I think I I just I just you know with with C eighty six and, and funny enough, I think some would say the wedding present was the epitome of the C eighty six bands. But um, and maybe it's because I got to know them. Uh, I I didn't find them I didn't find them dull. But I think a lot of those bands were just. Um, it, it, I think, sorry, I think, sorry, trying to explain this. I think the thing about C eighty six was it wasn't a genre as such. It was, it was, it, it just covered this this kind of multitude of groups who were all, you know, who were all make. I can't, 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 I can't explain. It. Sorry, I've lost, I've lost. It now, <laughs> no, it's. Well, uh, I kind of think uh, that. Well, I. I think I think I know what you're going to say. It's that um, there there wasn't actually a scene, but the, the the NME journalist Neil Taylor put together 22 tracks, and the June Brides were famously said, "No, we don't want to be part of it," because there wasn't really a scene. But they were all part no. of that kind of very thin production sound. But it was completely different to the the Trevor Horn s kind of bombastic yeah. Duran Duran, ABC, you know. And actually, for indie kids like me, it was like, "Oh, thank God for that," because I I can't relate. I'm not going to go to those clubs that the face talk about 
back because I'd be far too inhibited. Whereas these kind of rather scratchy bands who are making flexi discs and probably do one single and an album, and that was all their career ambition, you know, got stuck yeah. onto this. You know, they just happened to be at the right place at the right time because recently I interviewed Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness, and he said, oh, we were just two years too early for punk, you know, two years. And it's like, oh, what a shame. Yeah. And he said, well, in a way, that was probably lucky because otherwise we'd still be doing those punk things that you do 40 years later so in a way I think you know timing is everything because a band like we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and um you know I don't know there was yeah you know more money well, I think for me I mean what I have to remember when CA6 came along I, I would have been uh, 36 and I, I think there was a point then when I was too old I was too old to be going to see you know a scratchy band at a, as, a, as a small club um because especially as by then I, w- I was working with with groups like Echo and the Bunnymen and the Tiddle Explode, um, and you know if, if, you know I'd, I'd, see, I'd hear a band like the Bodines or Bogshed and I'd just think they just they're not as good they just didn't sound as good to me um, and then you know and, and I've actually funny I felt the same thing in 1976 when punk came along. You know, I thought, God, I'm too old for this. You know, I just didn't like any of those bands. They, they just seemed to be churning out, you know, bad Who records to me. You know, but um, yeah, I think CA, I think C86 is 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 a kind of fascinating period. But it was a sort of, but I think it was a transitional period more more than anything else. And I think it, I, I you know, maybe it did only appeal to. I'm sure it did only appeal to kids of a certain age. You know, who. Actually, were probably half my age. Actually, you know. Yeah. So, um, and that might be right. Anyway, I suspect he is actually. Um, that's the third part of my interview with Mick Houghton talking about those um, interests and periods of music and those different genres, and obviously the C eighty six era which we loved yes good old enemy bring that cassette out anyway we're going to play one more track then the last part of the interview this is going to be the wedding present and the track titled once more Oh, I know that I 
David Gedge sounding good as ever. That is uh, The Wedding Present with a track titled Once More, as if I needed to tell you. And this is the last part of my interview with Mick Howden, who has just brought out a book um, titled, I will just tell you, just in case you're making notes. And yes, it is worth you know, tracking down and buying. It's titled Fried and Justified, Hits, Myths, Breakups and Breakdowns in the music Business, 1978 to 1998. It's out on Faber and Faber. And um, yes, this is the last part where I began, was babbling once again, as I often do between uh, the person talking, about uh, what the process emotionally was like to write this book and whether it was slightly, and I have to admit this, a cleansing process. Mick, was it a cleansing process? <laughs> I know. Check me out. It's, in some ways, I mean, it, it was it, it was an emotional ride, and and I mean, some of it's almost like an open letter to to people. It's the other thing that you if it's a, you work with people for you know three years, five years, ten years longer, and you have a really good relationship with them and a, and a kind of a friendship with them um, beyond the working relationship. But but um, you, you you always know when to stop somehow. There's always a point where you think, okay, not not. Not so much. I don't think this group is going to achieve anything further, but you kind of you feel that that's. I used I used to I used to like being involved with groups when I felt I'd made a difference. You know, uh, and, and sometimes you know when you've made that difference and it's time to move on. So I, I think I a lot of it's addressed to those people. Those people, like I say, who I, who I knew really well, I had a good good relationship with, but you. you I'd lost touch with. I'd lost touch with. So it's it's almost like an open letter to them to some extent. Um, but um, I think one and, and more than anything else, more than anything else, and maybe this is the thing about the C eighty six period. If I'm thinking back 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 now, is that the, the the initial groups that I worked with as a as a PR, which was which would have been the Rosillos and the Undertones and was fortunate to work with Talking Heads, and then with Echo and Bunnyman and the Teardrop Explodes. Um, that was a really, it was also a really fun period because it was it was such fun to be part of something for the first time and to watch to watch these groups grow, to watch you know, to watch Echo and the Bunnymen grow from a group who 
weren't particularly, you know, weren't a great live band. They didn't feel comfortable doing interviews. They didn't feel particularly comfortable in the music industry. And then they they they, they, they grew into it. You know, they got suddenly, you know, they almost overnight they suddenly became a much better live band. They suddenly had, I think, it's about getting confidence. I think you have to be confident. Um, uh, and, and they overcame. You know, it's almost like they overcame all the doubts they had. I mean, that kind of only one were interesting because they they had they were hugely uh, ambitious, but at the same time they sometimes they just lacked competence. You know, and, and that's the balance. And then, like I say, you 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 grow into it. You grow into it. if you if you become successful, I think you grow into it. So that period was was really exciting for me because I'd never experienced anything like that before. And, and you're it's different to being a journalist where you're writing about, writing about something from the outside. Suddenly you're part of this thing from the inside. And that, that was, that was what was exciting. And I guess when, when you get, when I got to like the C86 period, it, it was a bit like, this isn't as much fun as it was, you know, with the bunny men or with the teardrops, um, which is why I took for, for me personally, I think when, when I get, when you get to the nineties, I, I started, I started doing, different things like i i tried to move away from working with groups um you know which, which you know which is why this is in one of the later chapters in the book i you know i ended up you know working with some or with with the, you know the writer ken kesey or you know working with andrew oldham who's managed the stones it, i guess working with people that were actually more my age to some extent um you have to you know, you have to keep moving, I think. You have to keep moving on and trying to find something new that's going to excite you. And, and I think by that stage, I guess, I wasn't overly excited by what I was hearing on the John Peel show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I Actually, that's not strictly true, because the truth is I don't think I was listening to the John Peel show by then. Well, this has been... I, I honestly, I, I do think you outgrow things like... I think you've outgrow... Not, I mean, now I guess it would be you outgrow six music or something you know you you, you you know you 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 can't you have to acknowledge your, your own experiences and your own age i think and um you know it, it's very it, it's very it'd be very sad if, if in the 90s when i was in my 50s i was still going out to small indie clubs i think you know <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it happens. It happens when you go to a gig and you think, "God, I'm that old man at the gig," and the self-conscious moment, and you think, "I don't want to do this again." Well, that's it. You, yeah, you're standing there at the back, thinking, uh, "You know, who's the like old man?" Dad. I look like somebody's dad who's just waiting to take his kid home and make sure he doesn't get into any trouble. You know? Yes, that's true. I, I, remember, I do remember John Peel saying that because John Peel. Um, you know, was still going to gigs, and he said that after a while he was, he was he was just finding it more and more uncomfortable because he was you know he was he was the old perv at the back. You know, <laughs> people, yeah, you have, um, yes. you know, you, you um, yeah, you you have to uh, you have to move with the times and act your age. I think and, this is uh, true. Sometimes it's difficult. See, sometimes it's, it's difficult because <laughs> because it is fun. I mean, that that's what I hope comes out of the book that it is fun, and I. You know, a lot of people said it, the, the the book is very funny in parts, and I think, I think, and that's what I remember most. Going back to the whole, you know, you're asking about sex and drugs and rock and roll. The implication is that that somehow it's seedy and it's it's it's. It, I I I didn't I didn't find it that way. You know, it was uh, 
you know, maybe that's just maybe I'm seeing it through rose-coloured glasses. But I, I like the, the. There was still a period in most when you work with most groups when you're working with them, with it, whether you know, there's still a certain amount of innocence naive, and naivety. And it's it's sad when I think it's sad when people lose that actually. Yes, and that does occasionally happen. But there you go. But look, this is great. Well, I'm glad we got there in the end. Yeah, sorry, I feel I've been rambling a bit. I don't know how much of this you can use. No, but... no, no, it's been good. It's been very good. Oh, it's great. And um, no, I've really, by the way, I love the book. I've, you know, I found that really, you know, interesting because, um, like I said, there were certain, you know, bits which, um, you know, I sort of went, oh, bloody hell, there's a whole chapter on C86. I'll definitely read that straight away. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I was immediate because I, 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 Dan was saying where you were based. And I was, it, it is interesting because as a, as a PR, um, Obviously, I went on the road with bands a lot. It's it's it was quite rare. We I can't I can't even think. There must have been certain gigs in in in, in the sort of Norwich, Ipswich area that that groups played. I, I can't remember going there too often. You know, yeah, you were yeah. always going to Manchester or Glasgow or Edinburgh. Or well, I can be, yeah, because we had the there's the arts centre which was quite small, and in your day there would have been the university, the UEA, and that's where I yeah. saw that petrol emotion. So it was quite interesting because I did an interview with the the lead singer of that petrol motion, his name now, but you know, I don't know, Steve. Oh, Steve, Steve. Steve And it was Mack. kind of interesting because his whole story with the band was one of every time something was about to happen for them, somebody left the record company and then they just got kind of, you know, the, the, yeah, it was just kind of, so I was kind of curious and fascinated with your kind of take on that because yeah. when he told me, he was like, oh yeah, this guy really signed us and he loved us from this record. And then he said, oh, Paul McCartney just wants me to go and work for him and I've, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to say yes. And so, you know, then the record, the, the people at the record label go, who the hell's this band? You know, let's get rid of you. Yeah, and, you oh, know, yeah so, I think I think they were on, I mean, this is the first two were like small indie labels. I think in the course of their career, I think they were on five different labels, yes. you know, in the space of about five or six years. You know, and, uh, um, they were a great band who, um, you know, aside from that, and that was true, you know, I think what that, that you know, it was unfortunate that the people, you know, the record companies changed and they moved on, but they were, they were curiously ahead of their time with, with, with what they were doing. And um, it, it almost felt like, they, you know, they, they you know, if you remember a single called Big Single called Big Decision. Oh that God, was, yes, that was, that was the indie, indie classic track with a with a kind of rap, you know, with um a kind of uh, a, a kind of rap in the middle of it. Yes. You know, educate, organize. I can't remember what it was. Because well, but, it was taken from a a rap group called Brother D and the something. Oh God, I can't remember. Yes, you know, but it, right. they had taken right. that and put this rap in, and we had been, you know, John Peel fans had suddenly heard, you know, Public Enemy, Roxanne, Roxanne, Shante, um, even LL Cool J, you know, these early days, and you know, he was always playing those electro compilations. So suddenly yeah. he had this indie sound with this rap, and it was like, God, this is oh yes, because Run DMC was obviously huge, and and that yeah. it, you know that was an instant classic, wasn't it? Big decision, you know. Yeah, and, and even beyond that, I mean, they were they they were moving, they moved into that sort of you know, dance crossover area long long before the whole Manchester, Manchester thing happened. And, um, and the, the, yeah, they were just, you know, they were just something, they just, they were one of those groups and it happened, it does happen that just kept missing out. <laughs> they just didn't, they, you know, they were either, they were always out of sync with the times and, and more often than not ahead of it, you know. Um, but, um, and that is something, sorry, 
but it's very important with, when we're talking about gigs. I mean, the, the college circuit, the university circuit, was was majorly important because you know, if any any city or any town with a, with a university, there would be you know would, would be putting on a gig every Friday or Saturday night. So that was you know that was another another place that you got to see bands and. Um, and that even even when I was at uni in the late sixties, you know, I, I would see, you know, groups like Fairfield Convention or Free, you know, at, at, at college and uh, John Martin, people like that. It's it is very generational. It's like something about John Peel. I think that's what was remarkable about John Peel is that he 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 stuck with it. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's John Waters said that if he if he being John Peel ever reached puberty we'd be in trouble and that was kind of that famous quote I think it was famous I don't know but I can remember it and I kind of got the point because actually that was going back to that thing about the gatekeeper and that period was that you know that one John Peel play and that session and a, even a little review in the NME would mean you know for those bands that are done from the C86 world I mean they would then get that you know they would be able to go and do the not the college but the the kind of art centre the punk clubs around the country yeah. and, that, and that would give them three months as a oh yeah the other thing was being unemployed or the job seekers allowance or the enterprise allowance was all kind of really important to those bands and then it's almost like well what do you want to do do you want to push yourself and do the, that album and the next album or is that it and I think they would go oh we might as well give it a go but then they weren't so focused whereas when you look at you know you 2 and people like that it was like wow you are focused yeah and, you, you have, oh yeah I mean, you have to you have to have that drive. I mean, that I mean, the undertones were the classic classic example of this. Is that they, in a sense, you know, their I think their initial ambition was they wanted to be the first punk group in Derry to make a record, and they did that. You know, then, you know, I think for some of them, if they packed up after they'd done the, the first John Peel session, that, they would have been happy. That would have that would have been. There's an achievement that they would have been happy to have stopped there, uh, you know. And I think for some of the others, they were happy when they made the first album, um, and that was, you know, that in a way that was part of the conflict within that group was because I think you had someone like Fergal and actually Damien, who was the youngest member of the band, the guitarist Damien O'Neill, were far were, were far more ambitious than the other three in the band. So it's 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 difficult, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why you see this kind of dysfunctional nature of groups because not, not everybody wants the same thing. And, and, um, that was very true of the bunny men as well. You know, some of them just didn't, didn't like touring, didn't want to go to America. Um, you know, I remember Les and the bunny men saying, uh, you know, we was on our way to go to America for the first time, which you'd think would be the most exciting thing in the group's career. And he was saying, oh, it's like doing national service. You know, it's, you know. And that is the last part of my interview with Mick Houghton talking about his life in music and the new publication that has just come out, Fried and Justified. You get the picture. It's on Faber and Faber. Buy it. It will change your life. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. I'll leave you with another little bit of exciting music from those golden period, golden years. This is... Um, the KLF. I know you have to play something by Bill Drummond in every show, otherwise one is just, you know, not doing them one's job. This is What Time Is Love.
step to let an MC come in effect with King Boy D. I wanna be, gonna be, old time sucker. You know the time, I never stutter. A beat, a dream, and yet see bright, yeah, past the mic. What time is love? 